0: It's Jeff Levering for Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Check out that effortless horizontal window slide and the best lifetime warranties in the industry. Order by April 30th and get 0% for 48 months at PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ talk and text line at
1: 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Here's the story. The Milwaukee County Department of Transportation. Who knew that Milwaukee County had its own Department of Transportation? Anyhow, the Milwaukee County Department of Transportation has selected a Chicago-based urban planning firm, to conduct a countywide reckless driving study. So we had to go to Chicago, couldn't find a local firm to do this. MUSE Community Plus Design, or just MUSE, was selected to undertake a project being called, quote, Complete Communities, Addressing Multimodal Safety in All 19 Municipalities, end quote. MUSE will be tasked with carrying out the legwork for the project um, and developing a final report. That legwork will include project management, crash data analysis, generating and carrying out a public outreach and engagement plan encompassing all um, of the municipalities. The Complete Communities Project is being funded through a $188,000 Federal Transportation Alternative Program, TAP grant, managed by the U.S. Department of Transportation, $188,000 for a Chicago firm to study reckless driving. But it does not stop there. Milwaukee County, which, of course, is rolling in dough, Milwaukee County will be providing approximately $47,000 in matching funding. So $188,000 plus dollars $235,000 to a Chicago firm to study reckless driving. All right, let me interject here. I, I, I'm, just, I, I'm here to help. So what can we do to maybe identify problems with reckless driving that we don't need to spend $235,000 in taxpayer money for? All right. Well, let me let me just start with really simple, something simple. And by the way, I'm, I'm not going to charge the taxpayers. I will not charge the taxpayers 50 grand for this. I will not charge them 20 grand for this. I will not charge them 10 grand for this. I will. This is my contribution. I will give this free. And if you do what I am about to suggest and what we are going to discuss, I guarantee you, you will do more to stop reckless driving in Milwaukee County, than any suggestion that comes for $235,000. I guarantee this. So pay attention. I come this way but once. I pulled three stories just from the news over the course of the last couple days. Just three stories from the news. Let's start with this story, which happens um, early last Saturday morning, April 8th, Friday night, Saturday morning. Here's the headline. Cash, drugs, and the need for speed. Waukesha police say two Milwaukee men had 245 grams of marijuana in their car. When police initiated a chase, the pursuit spanned from Waukesha to Milwaukee. When the car's tires were shredded down to its rims, the defendants fled on foot. Investigators say 19-year-old Charles Wright and 23-year-old Ravel Wright were inside the car. Officers say they pulled over the vehicle because the owner, Ravel White, had suspended license. Police say they could smell an overwhelming scent of marijuana. The police, so they pull these guys over. They take off. The police chase wove through neighborhoods. Police say Ravel Wright was driving at least 60 miles an hour through the Woodman's parking lot before hitting the interstate. This all happened just after midnight, early Saturday morning, so Friday night, Saturday morning. All right. That's how you spend Good Friday. On eastbound 94, police say the rights kept going. Waukesha police say other nearby departments helped by throwing spike strips onto the road at um, at um, 175th and Blue Mound in Milwaukee without a working car. Dash camera video shows the suspects run across three lanes of traffic. Wisconsin Department of Transportation cameras captured both men running northbound in both lanes of 175. A canine cornered Charles Wright. Police say Ravel Wright only stopped when three officers Officers pointed their guns at him. Um, As both men are arrested, prosecutors say they had one last stop. And then, of course, they find drug paraphernalia inside the car, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that is Friday night, Saturday morning. All right, second story. Glendale police chase. Fleeing driver hits another vehicle. A driver was arrested after stealing merchandise and leading Glendale police on a chase near Green Bay and Silver Spring on Sunday, April 9th. Police were initially dispatched to a pick and save on Sunday for a possible robbery. Authorities located the vehicle driving southbound on Green Bay Road and followed. It was discovered that the reported robbery was actually a retail theft. The pursuit was terminated due to the suspect's reckless driving. Moments later... Um, the thief's car crashed into another vehicle at Green Bay and Hampton. Two occupants of the struck vehicle refused medical treatment. The thief was evaluated for minor injuries, charges of recklessly endangering safety, resisting an officer, fleeing, eluding an officer, and two counts of felony bail jumping, which means that the thief, the fleer, the person who led the police on a high speed chase, that he was, he was you know, on bail for something else. Third story, April 10th, yesterday afternoon, about 1 p.m., while I am sitting here in our studios doing the show, five juveniles were arrested after a pursuit that ended near 76th and Bradley Monday afternoon. It started around 1 p.m. near 76th and Dean. Milwaukee police said officers spotted a vehicle that matched the description of one wanted in connection with an armed robbery. Police say the vehicle was being driven recklessly. Officers tried to stop it, but... The driver sped off. The chase ended near 76th and Bradley when the vehicle became disabled. Uh, it turns out the vehicle was stolen. Five juveniles were arrested after running from the car. So you got five juveniles. One o'clock yesterday afternoon, they are driving a stolen car. They are involved in a high speed in, a, in an armed robbery, and then, of course, after a high speed chase, they take off. There's many common elements to these three stories, but, you know, what? what is the the first and foremost element? In all cases, you've got the bad guys that run from the police. Now, I just pulled three examples of this, but trust me, you know, I, I could spend the next 30 minutes just looking at police chases over the course of the last week because nowadays it seems like nobody stops for the cops. The idea is that you run, and you run, and you run, and you engage in, therefore, by definition, reckless driving. All right, so here's my suggestion. You don't have to pay me $235,000 to do it. Something that would perhaps meaningfully deter future reckless drivers or at least stop those people who are currently engaging in reckless driving from engaging in even more serious reckless driving. As a general rule, running from the police, fleeing from the police is a felony. It's punishable by three and a half years in prison. And then if you hit somebody, if you hit another car, it, it, it ratchets up. And if you injure somebody, the penalty ratchets up. And, and if you kill somebody, it, it ratchets up uh, again. But I would argue that we shouldn't have to wait till somebody driving 100 miles an hour trying to flee from the police hit and kill somebody before we decide to take this seriously. Obviously, a three and a half year maximum penalty for fleeing police and driving recklessly is not stopping anybody from doing it because everybody does. And it is by definition reckless driving. So what is my suggestion? All right. And this is my message to Republican legislators who have the ability to do this tomorrow. Let's stop monkeying around with reckless driving. Let's put in, first of all, let's increase the penalties for fleeing from police. All right. Right now, the maximum penalty is three and a half years in prison. But you hardly ever hear anybody who gets three and a half years in prison for fleeing from police. Matter of fact, this is one of the charges that almost always gets dropped in plea deals as they look at, OK, why did the person flee from the cops? Oh, they were driving the stolen car. Oh, they were armed robbers, whatever. How about we start getting serious and we say you run from the cops And it's going to have a mandatory minimum penalty. You flee from the police and you are going to prison for at least three years. Maybe we make the maximum penalty five years, but you're going to prison for at least three years. Number one, it sends a clear message that we're tired of this and we're not going to tolerate it anymore in a civilized society. Number two... For the people who don't get the message, at least they're off the street so they can't engage in fleeing from the cops the next time they decide to run. Our number, 855-616-1620, that's our talk and text line. Okay, so here's the deal. We don't need to spend $235,000 combating, coming up with a study to look at reckless driving. You want to start with going after reckless driving, mandatory minimum penalties for fleeing from the police, Send a message that we're sick of it and we're not going to tolerate it. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, so I, I didn't charge you $235,000 for this. We're paying the Chicago firm all this money to look and come up with ideas on, on reckless driving. Well, I'm just going to start. One of the big causes of reckless driving is, of course, the lack of accountability. But it's also it's people fleeing the cops. On a daily basis, you will see story after story after story about bad guys who get pulled over by the police and they run, endangering the police officers, escalating situations, and endangering the lives of pedestrians and other motorists. And the truth of the matter is, while it is a crime to flee the police, it's a crime which is rarely ever pursued. And I think it's time to change that mandatory penalties, and we can decide should it be three years in prison, should it be five years in prison, but you run from the cops. Boom. When you get caught, you're going to prison, and you're going to prison for, again, figure out what the time limit should be. Now, a number of our texters are saying, well, Jeff, the problem is you've got these judges, like in Milwaukee County, who, who won't impose that. Well, that's why... That's why the legislature takes it out of the hands of the judges. That's why it's a mandatory minimum penalty. We're not going to let some judge come in and say, "Okay, I'm going to sentence you to five years in prison and but sentence suspended, put you on probation. So you go out and you commit another crime and flee from the cops again and hit and kill somebody. No, no more of that foolishness. If you run You go to prison. You don't pass go. You don't collect $200. Now, I concede that the one flaw in what I'm talking about is when you've got DAs like John Chisholm who don't want to hold people accountable. If the DA doesn't bring the charges, well, then you can't have the mandatory sentences. But that's a whole different story. Then you use that as a basis to elect the district attorney who really does care about protecting people. But what's wrong with a mandatory minimum penalty for people who flee from police? Why do we wait till they kill somebody when they're running from the cops many times after having committed another crime before we decide that they need to be off the street? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Dave in South Milwaukee. Hi, Dave. You're on WTMJ. Yeah. Good afternoon. Hi, Dave. Yeah, I see the same problem, I, like I told you, screener, uh, with uh,
0: concealed carry. It's, it carries a, a you know minimum sentence for carrying, and I never saw anybody do jail time for it. It was always bargained away, mm-hmm. and the the big argument is we can't we can't build prisons, we can't build prisons. You know we don't have enough money, but they've got money for all kinds of other other foolish things and yeah. prisons. I think prisons are a bottom line, like you said. with reckless driving, put
1: them in jail. You well, know that's that's the only thing. that's the only deterrent I, I, exactly and th- thanks for and sooner or later the message gets out I at least it and, and, and maybe I'm wrong maybe maybe you and I are wrong Dave thanks for the call maybe it's not a deterrent maybe people will continue to run from the police anyways and again put all the rest of our lives at risk but but at least When you catch the person who is fleeing the cops, if you've got this mandatory minimum penalty of three years or five years or whatever the time limit is, I'll let people smarter than me figure that out. They're at least off the street so they can't be out there doing it instead of us waiting till the person kills somebody or seriously injures somebody, and then we say, okay, well, now you're going to jail for 15 or 20 years. If if you want to talk about public safety, this is a good start. Now, I don't think this Chicago-based outfit is going to take $235,000 and have the audacity to say, well, we need to toughen the, the penalties in a meaningful way. You know, we're going to hear stuff about, oh, let's have traffic calming and things like that, and I'm, I'm okay with that, but that's not the underlying problem. The underlying problem with reckless driving is you've got people that don't give a rat's rump about anybody else, and they're driving 100 miles an hour, blowing through red lights, Or, as we've documented and we do on a daily basis on this program, they're fleeing from the police because it's a game that they play. And it's a game that they play, and they know that they're not going to be held accountable for it. And, yes, I understand it's against the law, but there's all sorts of stuff that's against the law. If the law isn't going to be aggressively enforced, and clearly that's what's going on now – And you've got judges that are unwilling to drop the hammer on people who are putting other people's lives at risk. Here's the legislature. Republicans, take take this back. You can pass this law. You've got a supermajority in the state Senate. You've got an almost supermajority in the state assembly. Put that on Tony Evers' desk. And if Tony Evers then says, hey, I, I don't want to impose mandatory minimum penalties for people who are running from the police... Well, okay, that's a whole different conversation. But you change—you know—you you, you change the dialogue. Why we Mickey Mouse around and say, "Here we're going to spend two hundred thirty-five thousand dollars on a on a program to on a study on reckless driving," when the underlying problem is we don't do anything to punish the reckless drivers in the first place? Well, wow. let's talk to Daniel and Racine. Daniel, you're on WTMJ.
0: Hi, Jeff. How are
2: you?
1: Good. What do you think? Hey.
0: Um I, I think they, they do need to change the law, okay? And, like, here's the problem. They need to change the law just like almost like with the drunk driving, then the, I think it's a fourth OWI, you do six months automatic. They, they need to change the law where these people get caught after driving a, a 3,000, 4,000-pound vehicle at people and endangering safety. It needs to be, like, at least a six-month minimum cost of correction sentence. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it needs to be like a jail like a like a prison sentence yep. because you're you're just putting too many life at risk.
2: You know, yeah, no,
1: I, I agree. No, no. thank Well, I agree. And again, we, we can we can argue about the amounts and what's the appropriate time. And and look, I, I appreciate it. I'm getting lots of feedback saying, Jeff, you know, it's Milwaukee County. Don't you understand that you've got a district attorney who bends over backwards not to hold people accountable? Well, John Chisholm isn't going to be there very much longer. I, I mean, I, I, I'm i not sure he's going to run again in 2024. But, you know, this is a huge issue. And the people in Milwaukee County should have the, the right option to decide, you know, do you want to elect a district attorney who really cares? Cares about trying to make the streets safer, but this this is why you got to take as much discretion as you can away from the judges who want to bend over backwards and and let people out and give people second and third and fourth choices. And you at least have to put pressure on the district attorney to say, why did you plea bargain this charge away? Okay, you had somebody who fled from the cops led cops on a high speed, you know, chase, smashed up the car and then ran away and you've ended up catching them. Why why do we want to give them second and third and fourth chances? Why don't we send the message saying we're going to stop this? And that's at least my starting point. And again, you don't have to pay me two hundred and thirty five thousand dollars of taxpayer money in a study to do that. It's just common sense. Do you remember the old TV show, that '70s show? And they did a reboot this summer, called—or actually a couple months ago—called that '90s show, featuring the, the the same cast. But but the dad was the character named Red Foreman, and the dad was played by an actor named Kurtwood Smith, and, and one of his his. Standard lines was, I'm going to kick you in the, you know, fill in the blank. And that, that was it. My foot's going to be so far up your, you know, certain part of your anatomy that, you know, whatever. You know, your, your head's going to be pointy or whatever. That was one of the, the standard lines. And it, it got a big laugh line and things like that. I was thinking of that story when I came across this one. And it is, if you have not seen this video that has gone viral I hate that because it's a cliche, but this one has gone viral. I, I've, it is the must-watch video of the day, and if you follow me on Twitter, I've, I've put it up there. It's, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. But but here's the story. It involves a woman named Jackie Miller, who is, I believe, sixty-eight years old, and about two or three years ago, um, in retirement, she decided that she was going to start driving a school bus. You know that that's what happens. A lot of people, you know, retire and they are looking for something else to do. So she became a school bus driver for a, a school district called Amherst Exempted Village Schools, which is uh, outside of Cleveland. So that that's that's kind of the area. And so she was dri- driving middle school and high school kids. That was her route. And apparently this was the bus from hell. Because these the, now, I'm going to freely admit this. You couldn't pay me mo- enough money to drive a a school bus full of middle schoolers and, and high schoolers. But these these kids, these progressively educated problem children, were um, apparently particularly hostile and mean. And these are some of the things that they, they decided that they were just going to target the, this woman. And she has she has asthma. So what happened is in an effort to kind of provoke her about a month before early february what happens is at least a couple of the kids bring like perfume onto the bus and start spraying the bus with this perfume which causes her asthma to act up and so she stops the bus she tells all these kids you you can't do this you know and, and she apparently like has like a breathing attack caused by this but Okay, so all this does is it tells the kids that they found a, a vulnerability. You know, as a school bus driver, you're supposed to be like paying attention to the road, and the kids are supposed to be moderately well behaved. Well, what these kids start doing, and there's a couple in particular who have their cell phones, and you're not supposed to be on your cell phone in the school bus. And what they start doing is they start. Calling each other on their cell phones on the school bus with the ringers turned up as loud as they can, trying to create a distraction. You know, you've got all these, these cell phones that are—they're going off while this lady is trying to drive the school bus to make sure that none of these little darlings get get you know, hurt. So they're, they're told that they're not supposed to do this. And then there's other stuff that they're doing as well. One of the kids is apparently downloading pictures of other of his classmates' mothers off of Facebook and then, you know, making comments about the mothers and this is creating problems on the bus. So you've got these out of control kids. So there, there is a video of of this. The woman, she's driving the school bus, Right. And after being told that she's allergic to this stuff, don't spray perfume. Well, what happens? One of the kids starts spraying all this perfume. All right. She stops the bus and she goes walking back. And, of course, this is in the context that the phones are ringing and you've got all these kids that are engaging in this out of control stuff. And she she goes she lays into these kids. And of course, one of the kids is out there with the, with the cell phone that's videoing this. And there, I've got a link to this video. And it goes on for several minutes. And she just rips into these kids. By her own admission, she, she loses it. You know, she goes on a two minute rant filled with expletives saying, I've had my fill. I'm done with this um etc etc you know you know you stop this you know you're a punk all these things she starts screaming at at the kids and of course you know one of the one of the little darlings is filming this and and they put this up that they post this immediately after posting this the school superintendent decides to weigh in on this his name is mike molnar he's the superintendent and instead of sending out a notice indicating what led to this kind of meltdown and telling the parents, hey, we're going to try to get control of our school buses. He sends out a note saying the behavior exhibited by the bus driver is unacceptable and will not be tolerated, adding that her actions do not represent the values and the standards that we uphold as a district. So immediately he decides to come down on the side of the progressively educated problem children on the bus and the pampered out of control punks. And he said, oh, this is where, you know, we're this, the super, the school bus driver. Well, this doesn't represent our values. And the school bus driver sees this and she says, OK, that's it. I'm done. I, I quit. I resign. I, I don't need this. You know, you're not backing me up. She says, look, I I look, I'm I'm kind of sorry, I guess, for cursing at the kids, but I'm I'm really not because, you know, these kids were out of control and, you know, I regret the delivery, but I don't take back really what I said. I regret the delivery, but, you know, the the message was correct. So she resigns after the school superintendent throws her under the bus. Well, interestingly, after this video got posted, people from all over the country decided that, you know what? You know, she's she's getting the raw end of this deal. And what happened is they started, like, GoFundMe pages, and they started selling T-shirts and things like that. And as of the date of the last story that I'm looking at, which is of yesterday, $105,000 had been donated as to a retirement fund for the school bus driver people from all over the country saying, you know, you know, we think you're getting a raw deal, and we think that rather than being concerned with the fact that, yes, you, you know, cussed out some of these little darlings who were behaving in an out-of-control, reckless fashion, you know, maybe, maybe they should have been more concerned with what was going on the bus as opposed to what you said to the kids who were out of control on the school bus. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. All right, the school bus driver quits. She says, look, if I'm not going to be backed up by the, the school superintendent, that, that's that's fine. I'm, I'm done. She's now, people have donated over $105,000 to her retirement fund. My response is, I think that's great. My guess is this isn't the first time the pampered, out-of-control punks on the school bus had heard these words. And candidly, maybe if the school superintendent had stood up for the bus driver instead of the progressively educated problem children, maybe, just maybe, stuff like this would be less likely to happen. What message are you sending when you come down on the school bus driver instead of, coming down on the bad behavior that had been engaged in by the kids day after day 855 616 1620 that's the WTMJ talk and text line my response is look I, I you know you never want to see somebody you know lose it and and you know lay into these kids but you know what maybe if some of the parents would have done that a, a long time ago maybe these progressively educated problem children wouldn't be Doing this stuff and getting away with it. 855-616-1620. Interesting to me that the school superintendent decides to come down on the side of the punks instead of supporting the school bus driver. We discuss in just a minute. Mm 855-616-1620. We have definitely touched a nerve with this story um, uh, uh, with lots and lots of texts. Jeff, you have to kick all the kids off the bus. Make the parents find another way of getting their little angels to school. The inconvenience will convince some of the parents maybe to try to straighten out their kids. And then one of my favorite texts, and it actually did take me down memory lane. Jeff reminds me when I was a kid 30 years ago. I remember one time. We were out of control. The bus driver pulled over, stopped the bus and chewed our butts off. And I think everyone supported the driver. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that. I can remember. I can remember. I didn't I I lived like close to schools and stuff. So I, I didn't I rarely rode school buses. That's just the way it was kind of working. But I mean, I can remember some of those situations. If you do this. Okay, we're stopping this bus, and there would be occasions where that, you know what? And if you would go home and say, oh, you know, the school bus driver stopped the bus and screamed at everybody because, and my dad, I can remember, my dad would have said, well, okay, what was it that caused... Why was it that the bus driver stopped the bus and yelled at everybody? Well, so-and-so was doing this or doing that, or there was a fight in the back. And my dad would have said, well, yeah, okay. And so your feelings were hurt because you got yelled at. But, of course, we live in a different time. When we come back, all right, we frequently ask the question, where are the parents and should they be held responsible? I've got a great story that brings that question to the fore, and we do that right after the top of the hour news.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the
1: Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So did you hear what White Barmore-Pooley just said? Eighty? Did you say 80 degrees tomorrow? 80 degrees? I did. It's oh. uh, first of the year. My man. 80 degrees. Okay. And there, we have a, matter of fact, I have an abbreviated program tomorrow, a two-hour show, because we've got uh, Brewers baseball there at the third game of their series in Arizona is coming up, so I don't know. Eighty degrees, I gotta be able to find something to do outside tomorrow afternoon. What could that possibly be? Eighty degrees. And I, I've been telling you, I mean I understand that, you know, winter was mild and then March was just absolutely awful, but now, okay. So for everybody who said, All right, it's gonna be just terrible and will winter ever end? And it looks like it's okay, at least for a while. Now look, I understand it's still April and April and May can still get dicey around here, but I'll take 80 degrees tomorrow. We frequently ask the rhetorical question, where are the parents? And when we talk about stories involving out of control young people, there are many of you who text me on a regular basis and say, why aren't we holding the parents accountable? And, and, Part of the answer is, and it's not a satisfactory answer, I get it, but part of the answer is there's only so much you can do to hold parents accountable for the, the behavior of their children because the parents say, well, you know, we didn't know that Johnny was out at 2 o'clock in the morning stealing cars or, or whatever. Now, we all understand that a lot of times it's bull roar, but but, but nevertheless, it's very difficult to hold parents accountable. Here is a story that I want to discuss with you to get your reaction to it. You may remember the story from well, actually, it happened in late January in Virginia. Newport News. This was the story about the six-year-old kid, the first grader, who brought a gun to school in his knapsack and shot the teacher. You remember that that story um, that happened? So the kid you know, shows up with, with a gun. Now, it's, it's a bizarre story um, on, on so many, many levels because the kid, the six-year-old, everybody recognized his, him as being a, a very, very emotionally disturbed child. And apparently what had happened was that um, the, the kid, when, when he came to school, There were reports, apparently school officials had been warned multiple occasions that day that the kid may have a gun. This is a six-year-old, that he may have the gun. And some of the employees at the school asked them to search the boy's pocket. Um, Apparently another kid said the boy had shown him a gun at recess, and there was it's apparently some cursory search of the kids backpack or whatever and they didn't find the gun but he had the gun and so what happens is the kid pulls out the gun he shoots his teacher um, it, she puts up her hand to try to block the bullet the bullet goes through her hand hits her in in the chest now the the good news about this is that she's she's going to survive but you know she's she quit her job, and she's filed a lawsuit against the, the school district for, you know, failing to protect her and things like that. And that's all playing out. The school superintendent, who um, sc- screwed up really badly um, in this case, he's apparently um, – his contract has been terminated as a result of all this. Um, and you've got a six-year-old. And, and here's here's just the truth. What do you do with a six-year-old? I mean, obviously, you've got an extremely troubled kid – but there's still a kid. You can't put a six-year-old in prison for 25 or 30 years. I mean, you just can't do that. So there's this, the law is just not equipped to really deal with six-year-olds that bring guns to school and start shooting. But what the law does allow you to do is to say, okay, when you've got what is clearly a disturbed child, it does allow you to say when it comes to, for example, the parents there's a higher standard of care. So here's what happened yesterday. A a Virginia grand jury has now indicted the six-year-old's mother. Her name is Deja Taylor on one felony charge of child neglect and a misdemeanor charge of child endangerment involving a loaded weapon. So apparently this is what happened. The gun that the kid got... Um, belonged to the mom. So the kid got access to the gun at home, brought it to school in his pocket or his knapsack or whatever, and, and pulled it out and used it to shoot the teacher. The story that the mom has, and I don't know if there's a dad in the picture or not. I, I, I just don't. The, the gun, a 9 millimeter handgun, legally purchased by the child's mother. The story is they they say at least that the the gun was it, it was in a closet in the house and the the mother says there was a trigger lock on it. well i, I it's it's kind of hard to believe because I, I'm not sure that six year olds would be able to navigate trigger locks, but that's their story. Oh, it, it was in this closet and it had a trigger lock on it. Well, either the one thing we know is, it wasn't secured away from the six-year-old. Six-year-old was able to get it. And whether it was a trigger lock that the kid was able to get, you know, the key to, or more likely that there wasn't a trigger lock, but I don't know any of these details. But the bottom line is the six-year-old was able to get access to this gun, get out of the house with the gun and use it to shoot the teacher. So they're now trying to hold the mother accountable for not keeping the gun out of the six-year-old's possession. And I think the argument is pretty much going to be whatever it is that you say you did was obviously insufficient to keep a six-year-old from getting access to the gun. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, let's tee this up. Is it unfair to try to hold the mother responsible? Gun is, is legally purchased by the mother, Gun is in the house. Gun is able to be, these are things that you can't argue with. Guns are. Gun is able to be accessed by the six-year-old and is able to be fired. So, I mean, I think the fair assumption is the gun was loaded. Six-year-old was able to get it. Six-year-old was able to get out of the house. And six-year-old was able to shoot the teacher with it. Is it reasonable to hold the mother at least partially responsible for this, she faces, like I say, criminal charges of child neglect and endangerment. Okay, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. The lawyer for the mom says, "Well, well look, you, you got to understand, um, the gun was in the top shelf of the mother's uh, top shelf of the mother's bedroom closet and had a trigger lock." Okay. well, again, I I find that hard to believe because you've got a six year old that we we know the six year old was able to get access to the gun and there wasn't a trigger lock on it when the the six year old showed up at school. So my guess is that it wasn't there, but it doesn't make any difference because as a responsible gun owner, especially in this case, you know, you've got a troubled kid and there's no issue about that. You have an obligation to keep that gun out of the reach of the kid and outside of his access to it, I find it hard to believe that a six-year-old would be able to get up to a top-bedroom closet and then somehow figure out how to take the trigger lock off. So, I mean, I'm skeptical of that story, but it doesn't make any difference. She failed. She failed to keep that gun away from a child, and especially given the fact that you knew that this child, you know, had all sorts of emotional issues. Now, there's other problems as well. The school administrators did a terrible, terrible job. You know, obviously, you know, there were reports that the kid had a gun at school and they weren't able to find the gun. And if they did searches, they didn't do the searches very well. So there's lots of blame to go around. But yeah, I think in this case, it starts with the mother. And if you're going to be a firearms owner, I don't think it's too much to expect that especially, well, or any kid, but especially an emotionally troubled kid, you've got to take steps to keep that guns out of that kid's hands. And in this case, they clearly did not do it. Uh, let's start with Marcus on the north side. Marcus, you're on WTMJ.
0: Hey, there, how you doing? Uh, long time no here. So, uh, uh, so my question is this. Uh, so she should clearly be charged, and she should serve some time in, in, in jail. Because when you purchase a firearm, okay, and I have two children myself. So when she purchased a firearm, first of all, a six-year-old child, their comprehension level as far as what's going on, Uh, It's not to that level of a child that's uh, 14, 15 and does Mm -hmm. something like this. So it's clearly irresponsible that the mother never secured the gun from the time that she purchased it and where she secured the gun in the household. That's my biggest problem. How does a child of six years of age know that you have a gun that's loaded, right? And she claims that she had a lock on it. I believe that gun was sitting out on the public table or a kitchen yep. table or wherever it was sitting at. That's what happened. And I believe the law is clearly correct. She deserves prison time or what she did. And luckily that teacher did not uh, die from that. And I'll take your thoughts off the air. But she she did clearly wrong.
1: No, right. no. Th- thanks to the i I agree with you. I mean, it's. It just—it's easy, so I had a trigger lock on that. Well, okay, I find it difficult. That means that a six-year-old, first of all, has to figure out how to take off a trigger trigger lock. But regardless, that means a six-year-old has to be able to get access—not just only to the gun, but access to the key that you know opens up the the trigger lock. I mean, so you know, that's—I—I'm I, with you. Obviously, I think that there is more to the story. But you know, if you're going to have a firearm around with a kid. Any kid, much less a kid that's got these emotional dis- issues that this child has, you, you get. Let's face it, you, you, got, you got to have a gun safe, and you have to make sure that this isn't going to be accessed. And to me, it's almost like if I use one of the lawyer phrase, this is this is just you know, criminal per se. The fact that the kid was able to get access to the loaded firearm and bring it to school, that in and of itself, to me, is just child endangerment. You put the kid in a position where he could get access to the firearms. Uh, Let's talk to Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi,
0: good afternoon, Jeff. I agree with uh, your previous caller, Mark, and and with you, I can't see a six-year-old figuring out how to take a trigger lock off a gun. And if this kid was emotionally disturbed or whatever, I'm sure that he must have handled that gun before in her presence. So, I'm just thinking, you know, he must have been playing with it or something at some point in time. She should have had it more under lock and key than she had. It should have been somewhere in a locked drawer or something on top of everything else she took care of. But yeah, I, I believe I, that uh, she, she's, uh, she's like liable. And uh, it's not totally, but mostly.
1: Right, right. Thanks. For, right. And again, there's a lot of blame that goes around. It, it starts with the six year old. and But. But there, there's only so much you can do to to a six-year-old, you know, and, and that's just the reality. And that's why you have to expect the grown-ups, in this case, starting with the mother, to, to do more. And it starts, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, we're not going to let you have access to the gun. Now, the, the thing... The thing here is, if if you want to look at the silver lining, and I, I look, the teacher got shot, okay, and she's going to survive. But still, the teacher got shot. But this 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 kid, this could have been another mass shooting situation. That kid could have pulled out the gun and instead of shooting the teacher, could have shot, you know, six or seven of his classmates. However many, you know, bullets were in the in the gun uh, in the magazine on the firearm. If you've got a nine millimeter handgun laying around the house and you've got an emotionally troubled six-year-old. Heck, if you've got any six-year-old, you've got to keep that gun away from them. And if you don't, you deserve to be held, at least in my opinion, accountable. Let's talk to Sandy in Milwaukee. Sandy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Hi. Yeah, I agree with the callers before. And I also would say that I think this law is applicable to other things, too, or this type of law. Um, It's an irresponsibility, you know, the parent, um, it's their responsibility to keep Obviously, their children safe and other people safe. Um, I, as a nurse, I see way too much gun violence, and it's a lot of times because of just irresponsible um, gun hold, you know, owners. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think this law could be applicable to dogs. Um, if your dog goes and kills somebody, why aren't you responsible? We just put the dog down, and you know, there's nothing. That's maybe a ticket's written, but we need people need to start being responsible again. And if your dog goes out and kills somebody, why aren't you in jail? I mean, I think that we need to th- start thinking about this as well in other ways because. We're expecting schools and um, society to try and correct these wrongs when, a lot of times, so much starts at home.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, th- thanks for calling. I mean, now the, the the rule. I mean, if you have a if you have a dog and you know, and the dog, for example, attacks people, there's civil liability. There can also be criminal liability. It, it depends. But yeah, I, I guess this is this is just so simple to me that if you've got guns around the house and i don't care where you are on the gun rights issue i don't care if you think there should be no restrictions on guns or if you think that people shouldn't be allowed to have guns you know if if you are a responsible gun owner There's a lot of things that come along with it. And step one is is you got to keep that gun out of the hands of children. And again, color me skeptical. I don't believe that there was a trigger lock on that gun. Um, It clearly wasn't in a gun safe. It was supposedly on a shelf. But to me, that's not enough. Now, one of our texters asked an interesting question. Jeff, if you imprison the mother, who takes care of the child? I don't know. But but that's not the, the issue. Obviously, the mother isn't doing a very good job of taking care of the child in the first place because the kid's able to get a loaded handgun that he brings to school and apparently has no problem shooting his, his teacher. So the, the least of my concern is going to be, you know, gee, what's going to happen to the mother of the year? Because clearly she failed in a, in a big fashion. Maybe this means the dad's got to get involved. Maybe it means that the grandparents have to get involved. But the truth of the matter is, You've got to, there's got to be penalties and there's got to be a deterrent for people who behave in an irresponsible fashion. And I don't think I'm too far out on a limb when I say allowing a six-year-old with acute emotional difficulties to get access to your handgun and bring it to school and shoot the teacher. I don't think we're too far out on a limb when we say, hey, that wasn't a very good job of parenting that you've done. Jay. interesting news involving freighter and of course disclosure here freighter is a a, a sponsor and a, a partner on the station and every month and for the last like 15 years or so we've done our everyday health features and I, I'm freighter that's where my doctors are and things like that so the, the breaking news and it's kind of interesting is freightert is m- announcing that they're going to merge with theta care now this is something that, that has to be uh, approved theta care is a much smaller um, hospital system than freighter freighter um, I think their revenues were somewhere in the nature of like three point three billion dollars um, for their fiscal year theta care um, about one point two billion so uh, theta theta is about a third the size of freighter you know roughly but what what this merger will do is it gives freighter access to um, theta care's facilities which are in the fox valley essentially Nina. And Appleton, and then they have a series of small rural hospitals. Again, in Shawano, Wapaka, Wild Rose, Berlin, and, and New London. So this gives Freighter by by this merger, it, it gives Freighter access to a different sort of part of the state. It's interesting because Freighter, which of course is based out of Wauwatosa, the um, they're they're in competition. Mergers are the thing nowadays. But Freighter, which is primarily a Wisconsin based. Healthcare system. Um, they're in combination with uh, the big ones are are Advocate Health, which is Aurora, and Ascension Health. Um, and Ascension took over the old Columbia St Mary's around here, for example. And they've they've Ascension's been in the news for lots of reasons that you don't want to be in the news for lately. But you know, Freyert has been competing against the, these national healthcare systems because Advocate Health. Aurora, I mean that's a big national outfit. Ascension Health, Columbia St. Mary's, that those are both national health systems. So this merger, if it's approved, and I have no reason to believe that it wouldn't be approved, um, this merger I, I think allows Freighter, at least in Wisconsin, to be again more maintain its its competitive nature and this is this consolidation is just what's going on and if you know anybody who works in the medical field and if you know doctors this is this is the trend you know what used to be like small private practices and things like that what you have is doctors just you know they're, they're closing those practices and they're becoming part of some of these larger systems that's just the, the nature and it's you, you got to do it to compete and you've got to do it to stay competitive so um i, I don't I mean, from, from the perspective of both, uh, Freight-ert and the perspective of ThetaCare, I mean, I think this is a, it's, it's a good move. And as a fan of Fredert, I really don't know anything about ThetaCare, but as a fan of Fredert, um, to expand into the Fox Valley, I think it's a good move. Okay. The, the tease was nothing lasts forever, but 85 years is a very good run. I, like many people, were surprised by the news yesterday that Cardinal Stritch University is closing at the end of this semester. Now, if you what is this Cardinal Stritch that he speaks of? Well, I, mean, I I I grew up very close to Cardinal Stritch. I grew up in I grew up in Glendale. I lived like 3 or 4 blocks away from Nicolay High School. Cardinal Stritch is right on the other side of the freeway. It's just on the other side of the freeway. So, I mean, I can remember when my parents first moved here in the 1960s, you know, there there was there was Cardinal Stritch University. Cardinal Stritch was founded, um, at least what became Cardinal Stritch, was founded, um, it, um, it was founded in 1937, I, I believe, and then it moved to its current Fox Point, Glendale, I think it's, it's technically it's in Fox Point. It moved to its Fox Point location in the early 1960s, and it's been there ever since. It's a, um, a very, very interesting school. I mean, it's never... It's never been a huge school, but it's a small school that um, has had, in many cases, really specialized courses. And a a number of the students have been, you know, people who were pursuing, you know, pursuing college degrees, for example, while they were also doing other things. You know, they had a lot of programs where, you know, if you couldn't be a full-time student, you could, you know, work and you could still go and you could take night classes, or they were very, very good about that. Um, It's... It's been a school that has, I think, served the community extremely well over the years. But part of the problem is um, attendance, especially post-pandemic, has, has just plummeted. For example, the um, as recently as 2018-2019, so four years ago, the school had nearly 2,400 students, small but still a decent size, by the fall of 2021, and those are the most recent numbers that I have, the number had, had dropped to 1,400. So you've lost, in, in the space of like three years, you lose almost half your student body. And the, the truth of the matter is, and I know there's lots of people that are just wondering what happened or, or why couldn't they have come up with some other plans and whatever. And and I, I know some of the people that are um, on or at least affiliated with the Board of Trustees and all, and, and who just truly love that facility and, and love the school. But at some point in time, you, you get this, this fiscal reality that kicks in, and it's like, okay, here, here's the deal. You know, the, the student population has decreased by you know, pushing 50%. You know, we're looking at trends, and, and we're not sure how we're going to be able to get it back up again. So rather than just okay, taking a ship and just cutting programs and, and not being able to fulfill, you know, the mission that we've had over all these years, you know, they've made the decision. Now, it's kind of a sudden decision that they're going to close at the end of the semester. And I'm sure it's a shock to a lot of the kids that are there. And they've, they've said, look, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work to try to make sure that all our students, you know, get placed somewhere else. But it's just the reality that it's a very, very competitive environment. And, we can make the argument maybe that there's too many of the schools out there or there's not as much demand or whatever, but I, I know the people who are on the Board of Trustees, they, they looked at all sorts of options to try to keep the school open, but the reality of it is, hey, you know, when when the kids, when there's just not enough students to justify keeping the doors open. And in order to keep the doors open, we'd have to scale back the programs. We'd have to become something different than we've been. At some point in time, you just kind of raise the white flag and it's unfortunate, but it happens. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. I I just, maybe one segment on this. Um, Again, I I was, I have always been a huge fan of Cardinal Stritch. I think it served a, a very I think it served a, a need in this community. I can remember over the years in I've worn lots of different hats and I can remember both in my radio hat and, and back in the days when I was a prosecutor and things like that. I can remember attending events and doing presentations and things like that at Cardinal Stritch. I've always been very, very impressed with the university. I I've been impressed with the job that they did. But I guess I look at this and I know there's some people who are extremely upset that it's closing and I kind of I say, yeah, I, I understand why people are upset, but the truth of the matter is, this is just the reality. And I, for one, would rather see Cardinal Stritch go out on a, on a somewhat of a high note. That 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 is end end before you you take it all the way down. Don't don't cut programs, don't cut staff. You know, instead, just say, okay, look, we're not able to do what we wanted to do, and so um, it's just the reality of the situation. We're going to say, hey, we've had a good run. They were around for 85 years, which I think is a very, very good point in time. I mean, they've got a lot to be proud of, and I think it's sad that they're closing, but it's also a reality. 855 don't know if anybody out there has graduated from Cardinal Stritch or affiliated with Cardinal Stritch in any way, but if you are, I'd love to talk to you and hear your reaction to the, the news that it's closing at the end of the semester. I know this comes as a surprise to a lot of people, but when you look at – the economics of this—it's it, not that surprising. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss in a moment. A grass fire. Well, Jeff, I graduated from Stritch in nursing. I had a successful career. I like the variety of the student population of races and countries. I like the Christian basis, positive, loving, and encouraging. Um, I donate money every year for scholarships. Very sad day. Yeah, it it, it is. It it is. Um, At the same time, it does demonstrate that that nothing, nothing is forever. And I mean, 85 years is a good run. And I, I guess, I, I mean, here's the reality for, for people who are saying, well, they should figure out other ways to do it. The, the, the student population essentially drops in half in a, in a matter of a couple of years. So you've got, you know, less money that is coming in. And I think. I'm sure that the the Board of Trustees and stuff said, okay, well, what's the chances for significantly expanding the student population in the next few years? And it's probably not, not necessarily that great. So you've got less money coming in. You've got costs that are going up, in some cases going up dramatically. So you're probably faced with these choices of, all right, we just don't have the fiscal wherewithal to extend some of these programs so we can start cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting in an effort to keep the doors open. Or maybe we just say, hey, look, you know, we, we've had this great run. We're not going to compromise our, our programs. We're not going to get rid of a lot of programs. We're not going to start laying off teachers and things like that. We're just going to say, hey, it's in the best interest of everybody for us to, to move on. And it, it's a sad day, but you can kind of understand this. Sherry in Madison. Sherry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi,
2: Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I uh, just wanted to say um, I'm a 2020 graduate of Cardinal Stritch's uh, Ph.D., the doctoral course, was, was an excellent course, uh, unique, met on the weekends, perfectly designed for people with, with families and jobs, and uh, great relationships between, I can't say enough about the, the relationships between the faculty and the staff and the students um and like you said it's not surprising it's happened um this is actually the third time it's happened to me uh both my bachelor's and master's uh, schools have closed the last one in 2020 up in manitowoc so
1: yeah so you're i mean your reaction to the close are are you surprised by this news sherry
2: you know i I'm, i'm not just because it's it's I could kind of see the, the handwriting on the wall, and I was a little bit concerned during the three years I was there from 2017 to 2020 that that uh, it didn't happen sooner, frankly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, you know, you, you see this playing out in some of the public universities as well. There, there's a couple, um, for example, you know, one of the schools that, that's in the it's escaping me at the, uh, right offhand, that right off hand. that's in the, you know, the western part of the state that the, the it's down to like 60 some people. You at some point in time, and especially if it's a private institution, once the numbers start dropping, they really they, they really have no choice. It's either make substantial cuts to the programs or close the doors and so it's it's a sad day but it's also it's just kind of the reality that's out there
2: it, it certainly is. It's a sad day for all of us alumni, can tell you that.
1: Yeah, thank, thanks for the call, Sherry. I appreciate it. Jeff, Cardinal Stritch College. I complete, and now it's university, but it was Cardinal Stritch College for a long time. I completed my bachelor's degree when I moved from UW Oshkosh to Milwaukee in 1980. I was one of those non traditional students while working full time at Menards on 76th Street. Now, that was me knocking over this thing that I have here. I was one of those non-traditional students working full-time at Menards on 76th Street. It was an excellent facility. I was very impressed by them. I'm sorry to see them go. Um, I feel there'll be a lot more educational institutions that will be closing in the future, um, in part due to people being able to take courses online Thereby saving a lot of money. Yeah, UW Richland Center is what I was trying to um, think of. Um, Jeff, very saddened by this news, but I'm not that surprised. My understanding is college enrollment has been on the decline for about the last decade in Wisconsin and the country, mostly due to the declining birth rate. As a Catholic school teacher, I've taken many classes there. Truly a beautiful place. Um, yeah, I, I think that you know that, that that's. That's just the reality that's going on. Jeff, it's difficult. I was going to school at, um, at, at, I think they said Mount Mary. I think that's what they're talking about. When they closed up, um, only five classes short of my bachelor's, um, you know, unfortunately, most schools want a minimum of 36 credits for you to graduate, right? And that, that's the thing. You, you feel, look, you feel bad for everybody and you feel bad for the students that are closer to graduation and things like that. And you hope that they're going to be able to figure out ways to, to place the, place the kids. Cardinal Stritch, I think it just had a great run, and that's sort of how I feel about this. I know that there were lots of dedicated people that did lots of stuff to try to figure out ways to make this work, but they had certain standards, and they felt that the economics just didn't allow them to make the standards, so to to continue to operate and provide those standards, so rather than just – allow the educational quality to deteriorate and start like a slow decline. They've just made the decision that it makes more sense to close their doors. It's it's a sad day, and I agree with Sherry completely and a number of our texters. It's a sad day. It demonstrates once again that institutions, nothing lasts forever. They just don't. And institutions that we think are going to be there forever, whether it's your favorite restaurant or whether it's your favorite you know store boston store you know I mean, remember boston stores just such an entity such a legend here and in boston stores, that they all go away it's just you can't take anything for granted nothing lasts forever
0: live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show now here's wtmj's jeff wagner
1: good afternoon wisconsin welcome back to the program um, we were talking in the last segment about the, the closing of Cardinal Stretch after 87 years and just being a function of economics. What One more institution that appears like it is on its last legs. Now, my producer, Charlie, and it's a generational thing. Just give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. Charlie, do you know what Tupperware is? You do know what Tupperware is. Good for you. Okay, all right. Um, Tupperware is, of course... I don't know the the generally the, the plastic products um, that you use for storage stuff, you know uh, preparation, storage, and, and serving stuff. Tupperware was developed um, originally in 1942. Tupperware products were introduced to the public in 1946. And again, so you're talking about storage and serving products, you know whether it's it's plastic pitchers or bowls or or things of the like. Now, why are you talking about Tupperware? Because it appears Tupperware is ready to go out of business. In a statement that they issued yesterday, Tupperware said that there is substantial doubt about the company's ability to continue as a going concern. Um, Tupperware is apparently trying to find financial advisors to find financing to keep the company in business. So in other words, they need people to put in a whole bunch of of money. Uh, Tupperware is in danger of being delisted, which is you know taken off the the stock exchange. Company said uh, last year, the last month it said that its sales force fell by 18% in 2022. They're trying to turn their operations around, but it, it isn't working. Their stock was down, uh, let's see, it closed on Monday at $1.24. The company's stock had fallen 98% in the last 12 months. And, and I will tell you, it's a lot easier to go from one twenty-four to zero than it is to go from a dollar twenty-four to, to ten bucks. Um, so you know there has been a, a steady decrease in Tupperware. Now, if you in, in the business now, Tupperware had a really really unique business model. Tupperware was not available in in stores. You you couldn't you couldn't go to a Walmart and buy Tupperware. You couldn't go to a Target and and buy Tupperware. Tupperware was sold through independent distributors and if you'll remember I mean I can I can remember my mom going to things like like Tupperware parties and, and what they would be is the independent distributor would be, Typically a lady, not exclusively, but typically it would be a lady in you know in the neighborhood who would host a Tupperware party and all the the ladies in the neighborhood would go and you know they'd serve whatever they serve at Tupperware parties and, and you know then they they take orders and people would buy the stuff. That that's how that's how Tupperware was marketed, again, through these independent sales agents and through the various Tupperware parties. And that worked for a long time until it stopped working and it got into a situation where also some people thought it was kind of like one of these multi-level marketing things where you also, if you were a Tupperware representative and you could convince other people to become Tupperware representatives, you know, you got some credit for it and things like that. But it was a business model that that didn't depend on retail and it's apparently um, petered out one segment our, our number is 855-616-1620 which is the WTMJ talk and text line I guess do you remember tupperware parties and 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 what what happened because again tupperware was this i mean it was it was just so huge for so many years it's been on the decline for a while and now it appears unless there's somebody that comes forward and and puts up a, a big pot of money into it, it appears the Tupperware that the company is going to at least cease to exist as as we know it. What happened? 855, 616, you know, 1620, that's a WTMJ talk and text line. I, I guess to me, the, the the sales model just doesn't work anymore for, you know, this century. It it might have been something that worked before, but you know, nowadays you, you've got – for people who want containers, you, you've got – heck, you've got container stores that, that you can you can go to. You don't need that the Tupperware parties to do this. I mean, to me, this is a situation – I think the Tupperware products were always pretty darn good. But at the same time, you know, what, what's happened is, you know, people – People don't want to wait around till you get the Tupperware party that, that comes to do that. People, hey, if I need containers, I'm going to go to the container store, or I'm going to go to Target, or I'm going to go to Walmart, or I'm going to pull it up on Amazon and I'm going to order the the plastic containers I I want. We're um um my my wife is big into containers. We have containers for everything, and it's actually very good because you know they'll they'll be okay we've got the cords there's a container for all the different cords for the iPhone and there's a cord for the like the the computers and and things like that and she's always on me to put stuff in containers so number one it's less messy and number two we know where it is but you know when you need the the containers and stuff you just want to go get them it's not the question of okay here we're going to wait till the tupperware party rolls around but those those were such a huge element of this and and tupperware just never Never adapted, recognizing that, okay, this independent marketing thing and the Tupperware parties and stuff, that might have made sense at one point in time, but, you know, no more. And and their failure to adjust their marketing, their failure to, you know, have a retail presence, I I think – you know killed them. Jeff, I have Tupperware from my mom that's over 40 years old and it's still in great shape. You can't say that about all the disposable storage containers that we have today. Um, you know, no question about it. Jeff, I remember Tupperware my mom sold and bought it. I still have my Tupperware children's play set. It's so valuable. I haven't shared it with my children ages 31 and 21 or my 2-year-old grandson. Uh Tupperware was high quality and it was very very worth it. Yeah, and it's not that question. But again, you know what? What are the stories that we're hearing? The people are texting and are saying, "Yeah, I got Tupperware from my mom, uh, Jeff." I remember Tupperware. My mom bought it and sold it. Again, that's another one of those stories, um, Jeff. If you go to Dollar Tree, they've got all kinds of plastic containers with covers. It, exactly. Um, you know, there's. There's no question about it. Jeff, Food Saver vacuum bags uh, take up a lot less space and do just as good a work. Jeff, Tupperware is innovative. Um at its invention, but there are so many types available, they no longer have a big market share. It's sad, but it makes sense. I say this is the owner of a lot of Tupperware, and I had a Tupperware party about two years ago. Jeff, the Tupperware product is so well made that it lasts forever. I've been married 50 years, congratulations, and I still have some that I got from my wedding. So it's hard to market a product that is so well made. It rarely needs replacement. You know, that is always one of the things as well. You get to a certain point where... Even if it's the greatest product in the world, especially if it lasts for a long time, everybody that's going to buy one has bought one. And the question is, okay, how do you expand this? Um, Jeff, the new generation feels plastic is poison. Glass is what they use now. Um, uh, that's it, Jeff. Um I am sure that COVID didn't help things. A lot of people are still not comfortable with the gatherings. Um, Jeff, I think glass works better in the microwave. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Jeff, I despise Tupperware in all its forms. Okay. Now seriously, how can, how can you despise Tupperware? I mean, you know, there's all sorts of stuff you can despise. How can you despise Tupperware? But the bottom line of this is it's one of these products that again was was so very, very big, and the Tupperware parties and all this type of stuff, and if these reports are correct, unless somebody comes in with a whole bunch of money, and if you're somebody who's looking for an investment with a whole bunch of money, why do you put it in Tupperware? I mean, seriously, what what is it that Tupperware is going to do that's going to change around and, and allow it to suddenly regain market share? So my guess is you know, pretty soon we're going to be, and I'm not hoping for it, but we're going to see the end of Tupperware. But again, one of these things that was just such a huge part of American life, and if you are of certain age, you, you remember you remember your mom going to Tupperware, and you remember all that plastic stuff that was around. Well, if you got it, keep it, because I'm not sure there's going to be too much new Tupperware coming out. During the break, my producer Charlie says, I wasn't aware that Tupperware was a specific product. He said, I, I thought it was like one of these just generic terms, kind of like, you know, Kleenex and, and things like that. No, no, Tupperware is a product. The, the I, never, I never realized there was a demand for containers. And like I say, my, my wife, Fran, is very much into containers. My, my late wife, Sue, we, she, we went out. I remember once she said, will you come with me? I want to go out to, I don't, I don't know if it's still there. Uh, I want to go out to the container store by Mayfair. And I said, the what? See, the, the container store. Okay, well, so we, we drive out to Mayfair and we go into the store. And I, I, I actually thought it was like a Saturday Night Live skit or something. It was, and it's, it's, it's a store. And, and all they sell is containers, and it's a big store. And I mean, I never knew there were so many different types of containers that that you could have—containers for this or containers for that. And I remember—I I mean, I, like I said, I thought it was a Saturday Night Live skit because they used to do the, the the tape store thing where you'd go to get like like adhesive tape and stuff like that. And thinking, how how can you have a store that has nothing but containers in it? But I, they do. So we in America, we, we love our containers, I guess, and that's part of the thing that probably killed Tupperware. Speaking of killing businesses, um, I, I've said this before. San Francisco, years ago, was one of the great American cities. If you you know had a chance to visit San Francisco – I, this is past tense. I encourage people to do it because, you know, great restaurants, you know, great views, you know, the streetcars, you've got Chinatown, you've got all these different things. And and, and San Francisco has been on a, a steady decline. It has been – for the longest years, it, it was overrun with, okay, homeless people. I mean, I remember years ago I, I was there and we were staying in the financial district and, and you couldn't walk a block without – being aggressively panhandled by by multiple people. And I mean aggressively panhandled. And and you couldn't go into the stores because there were people in sleeping bags that were spread out. You know, you you had to literally climb over people to, to get into stores. And it was just... I mean, homelessness got out of control and the city allowed it to get out of control. Well, it's getting worse because now you have crime that is just out of control. And there's one story after another about a violent crime that's occurring. And you've got you know, district attorneys that have been kind of turning a blind eye to this. And you're starting. It's just it's really sad to see what's going on in this great American city. I mean, here's the latest example of this. This is a story just from yesterday. Um And in. When I talk about the violent crimes, uh, you, uh, Bob Lee, who was the the founder of Cash App, you know, one of the big Silicon Valley things, he was brutally murdered um, just a few days ago. And that's really causing a lot of people to take a hard look at the level of violent crime and how out of control it's gotten in San Francisco. But Whole Foods, you know, Whole Foods just announced yesterday that the store they operate in downtown San Francisco is going to be closed. It's only it's only been open for a, a year, but they are are closing it. Um, and it's in the heart of San Francisco, Eighth and Market Street. They, they say it's closed. Now, why why is it closed? Is it COVID? No. Um, is it a lack of business? No. What they're saying it's closed because of crime. They say we're closing our location um, for the time being. Um, if if. We feel we can ensure the safety of our team members in the store. We will evaluate a um, reopening of the locations. But they're saying deteriorating street commissions, uh, conditions, heavy drug use, crime near the grocery store led to them just making the decision that, hey, we're we're not going to be able to stay open anymore. They say there's been a massive decline in people walking in downtown San Francisco um, Many small businesses have shut down. The area has extreme poverty, drug use, and mental illness on the street. City officials are predicting a nearly $800 million deficit in the city's budget. Whole Foods, the grocery, had cut its operating hours uh, in October over high theft and what they describe as hostile visitors, Um, they had to change their bathroom rules after syringes were found and finally you know they just said look enough is enough we can't continue to keep these stores open in the face of this and this is at the same time that San Francisco wants to talk about paying billions of dollars in reparations when they're running an 800 million dollar deficit and the fact is that you know the crime is so out of control that businesses that want to stay open can't anymore it's just kind of the reality that's out there it's the consequences of what happens when you don't get a handle on crime. Now, there's a lesson here for other American cities, including Milwaukee, and that is you just it might be tough to tackle this problem. It might be politically incorrect to deal with the problem. But if you want to have a city that's going to grow and thrive and survive, you've got to You've got to aggressively deal with issues like homelessness. You've got to aggressively deal with issues like drug use. And you've got to aggressively deal with issues like crime. If you don't take those issues on, there's no way in the world a city can grow. You know, one of our texters nails it. Jeff, uh, San Francisco has the same problem as on the south and west sides of Chicago. The people complain that there's no grocery stores nearby, but the grocery stores have all closed because of shoplifting and crime. They can't afford to stay open because the losses are so great. It's funny how every politician, when they are campaigning, says, we're going to revitalize the businesses on the south and west side. If they can't take care of crime, the businesses will not come back. That is the same story that played out here in the last month. You had a Walmart, a big Walmart on 103rd and Silver Spring that, that closed as of March 10th. Why did they close? They closed because of crime. They closed because what they call the term is shrinkage. They climbed, closed because the shoplifting problem was so bad they could not get it under control, and it was rendering the store not being profitable. So you, you reach a certain point where th- these businesses, they're they're not philanthropic endeavors they, they need to make money and if you can't get control of the crime whether it's crime in the parking lots or theft or whatever the businesses just do what businesses do they say fine we'll find another location it's happening all over san francisco it's happening in chicago and it's happening in milwaukee and it's why authorities need to wake up before it's too late unfortunately because it is politically incorrect in some respects you know, we're, we're those of us who are sounding this alarm. Well, okay, you're. You know, we we don't want to hear that. Well, you better listen up because if Walmart's on 103rd and Silver Spring close, any business can close. <laughs> Interestingly, a number of texters are reminding me of, of the number of businesses around here that are going out of business largely due to crime uh, across the street from our old studios from Radio City on Capitol Drive, an area that's been well, it's on Capitol Drive. That, that says, I think, a lot of what you need to know. There's a Piggly Wiggly store that um, had been there for a long time that that closed within the last couple weeks I I believe I think in mid-March they sent out the notice saying that they were closing there Jeff, the Walmart and Brown Deer is ranked fourth nationally for annual losses from theft. Millions of dollars lost annually to theft. The Silver Spring location was sixth nationally and it's already closed it's only a matter of time until that location also closes per their loss prevention personnel. Um, Jeff, it's not food apartheid, it's steel and insurmountable financial losses that are driving retailers out of Milwaukee. That That is an uncomfortable truth, but, but yeah, I, I think that's kind of the reality there. And then, of course, you know, the, the biggest example of that is is what we've talked about repeatedly, which is Northridge, which is, you know, crime killed Northridge, which in its prime in the early 1980s was the most valuable retail property in the state, valued it over... Um, Two hundred plus million dollars. So it it, it is a reality. It happens all over and nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants to come up with that uncomfortable truth and confront the issue. But that doesn't mean that the issue doesn't exist. Okay, where do we go from here? I want to revisit something we talked about a week or two ago because it's not about because it's not getting any better. Um, Russia is. An evil empire, to borrow the phrase from President Reagan, and um, given the fact that things are not going well in the war in Ukraine, what you see is Russia is taking more and more aggressive sort of action to try to I don't know, accomplish various goals or from the perspective of Putin, I think, to try to establish himself uh, as a tough guy. And and pretend that things aren't going as bad in the Ukraine. So we we had this story about about a year ago where you had the the WNBA basketball player, Brittany Griner, who uh, literally on, on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine decides that she's going to go to Russia to play basketball. And then she decides that whether it's on purpose or negligently, she brings in a small quantity of hashish oil. Okay, well, it, it's not Midnight Express. She's not smuggling large quantities of heroin or, or things like that, but it is against the law. Now, in a sane time, what would have happened with Brittany Griner is she would have been fined, maybe she would have been expelled from the country, but Putin saw this as an opportunity to hold her hostage, and that's precisely what happened. She was held hostage. There was all this international and national uproar about this, and ultimately the Russians were able to extort Um, The release of a convicted arms trafficker known as the merchant of death in exchange for this basketball player who had a small quantity of hash oil on her person. But but that's Putin was really, really good at saying, okay well, if if, you know you want this basketball player back and you do because there's this tremendous pressure that's being brought on Biden. Here's what I want. I want this arms dealer. All right. Well, we saw the same thing play out a couple weeks ago. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has this this reporter who is reporting from Russia, 31 year old guy named Evan Gershkovich. And March 29th, He's on a reporting trip in a provincial Russian city about 800 miles east of Moscow. He's dragged out of a a restaurant. He has now been detained and he's been charged with espionage. The guy's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Now he's reporting on on Russian, you know, war efforts and things like that, but he's not a spy working for the US government. Everybody knows that. Yet he has been detained. Um, and the U.S. is trying to get him back. But so far, you know, n- no no movement on this. You know, Russia, when they charge people with espionage, everybody's pretty much convicted. They're, they're show trials. This guy's theoretically looking at 20, 30, 40 years in prison. Yesterday, the State Department designated Gershkovich as um, being wrongfully detained. Now, that's that's a specific term of art which allows the State Department to, again, focus on negotiating for the release of hostages. So the the fact that you're detained, that that classification, and Brittany Griner had it too, opens up a a lot of different abilities, including the, the ability to continue to, like, like, trade, like prisoner swaps and things like that. If you're designated as wrongfully detained, there there's a lot more latitude that you have. But it's very, very clear that this guy was snapped up off the street, not because he's a spy, but because, number one, Putin wanted to prove that he could do it. And number two, this is another opportunity to potentially make the Biden administration look bad by saying, OK, no, we've got this guy, and if you want him back, and there's, again, it's different than a WNBA player, but he's he's a he's a journalist. He works for the Wall Street Journal. So you you have all these other you know news outlets that are out there saying, "My God, if it could happen to this guy, it could happen to ours." And they're putting all sorts of pressure on the Biden administration to, to trade. And you know Russia is going to be looking for some real criminals that are going to be released in exchange for this. And 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 it's a flat-out mess. Or if it's not a mess, it'll do until till a real mess gets here. Because on the one hand, you want to get this guy back. He, he's been wrongfully snatched. There's no question about it. And he's being held as a political hostage. At the same time, as we talked about with the Brittany Griner case, you know, one, one of the things, you know, we, we've learned over the years is you don't negotiate with terrorists because all it does is embolden them. You know, you kidnap somebody, and then you you pay that ransom, all you've done is embolden them to go out and kidnap somebody else. And it's, I admittedly, it's tough, it's tough to hold that line. But once you start negotiating with terrorists or a rogue regime like Putin in Russia, you've opened the door to allow people to be, uh, again, just taken off the street and held without reason. I don't know what they're going to do for Gershkowitz. I I don't know what they're going to do to try to get him back, and I don't know who they're willing to trade. But moving forward, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I've really been thinking about it since we had our last discussion, and I guess I, I feel more strongly than ever. Given what is going on in Russia now, there is no reason for any American citizen to be there. No reporters, no business people, no tourists, no hangers-on, because you are at risk of being grabbed off the street and then being held hostage for somebody or someone that, you know, Russia wants. I think a message needs to go out to say anybody, any American in Russia, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a business person, whatever, you need to get the heck out of there. And if you don't get the heck out of there... If something bad happens to you, we're sorry, but you're on your own. It's just not safe. Because unless we make that extremely clear, this is going to be the pattern. Every time there's somebody that Putin decides he wants back, you're going to snatch an American, and you're going to hold them. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I know I know we've got to I know that they're going to have to try to do everything they can to bring this reporter back. And I, I do believe he's wrongfully detained. But this is going to keep happening unless and until we require Americans, all the Americans that are there, they got to get out of there, period. And they got to be told if they don't get out of there, you're, you're on your own or you're going to end up in a situation like Paul Whelan, who's been held since, what, about four or five years or this this Wall Street Journal reporter, don't we need to get everybody out or tell them if you don't get out, sorry, there's nothing we're going to be able to do. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Look, I, I I don't know what you do about this Wall Street Journal reporter who's been grabbed in Russia and now is being essentially held hostage, charged with um, charged with espionage. For goodness sakes, and and he's now been designated as being wrongfully held, which allows the more latitude to maybe trade him for a prisoner. But you can't. This can't keep going on. And and moving forward. I just I think we have to tell people if you're an American you don't want to be in Russia right now and if you are you're you're on your own and I know that's kind of tough to say but we we cannot continue to allow this to happen can we Mark in East Troy Mark you're on WTMJ good afternoon
0: how are you doing Jeff good uh, hey with all this road apples going on uh, why don't we start grabbing some Russians well that's <laughs> and charging them one espionage
1: well you know because. I guess because we we're better than they are <laughs> would be my response you know and and we're a country of laws as opposed to a country of a dictator but yeah you're you're right there there's certainly a temptation there's certainly a temptation to do that isn't there yeah yeah no i i am with i mean look we we just can't we we can't be we're we're better than that we we can't be you know taking hostages and things like that, which is essentially what putin's doing. But at the same time, because as a matter of fact, I think the response that Putin is probably going to have is, "You can keep him. You know, we, we, you know, we don't care about that. But the, but the bottom line of all this is, we have to stop this from happening. And I, and I, look, and I, I understand. It's easy to say, Jeff. How would you feel if that was your brother that had been wrongfully snatched up in Russia? You'd want us to do everything you could to get him back. And and yes, and I, I would. That would be. That's the truth. But that's the. That's the individual talking, and sometimes the collective goal needs to be something different. The collective needs to be, all right, yes, uh, as an individual, I want him back. But at the same time, if you if you negotiate, you negotiate to, to get Brittany Griner back, and you have to give up th- this convicted arms merchant, the merchant of death. So you bring him back. Then what happens next? Well, then they grab this other guy. Who knows what they're going to want? At some point in time, you got to say enough is enough, and you either – Take this policy that you don't negotiate with the terrorist rogue regime, or alternatively, you give very, very clear instructions to people to get out of Dodge. And that's, I think, where we need to be there. Jeff, it seems to me that the U.S. State Department ought to issue at least the stern travel warnings about Russia as they currently do for parts of Mexico. I don't think we can trust Russia or China anymore, and I won't be traveling to either one. And I will personally urge everyone I know to do... The the same, Jeff. Can't America issue a travel advisory and ban flights going to Russia and limit travel coming to America from Russians from Russia to citizens only? Yeah, they they could. We could take steps like that. There's all sorts of stuff that we could do which would limit that. Now, I, I guess my my point though is if people decide that they look we all make bad decisions right and, and maybe the business says hey we want to stay open and we think it's worth us it's worth it and we, we need these type of things well okay if the business makes that decision that's fine that's a decision the business has made but then you got to say you you're on your own it's kind of like all right. During the the national disaster, during we, we've got a hurricane that, that's coming, and we've we've told everybody to evacuate, and we've also sent the message that if you choose not to evacuate, well, you know we're not going to be able to get emergency responders to come and help you out for 24, 48 hours, or whatever you make you decide you want to stay. That's fine, but you're you know you're on your own, Jeff. Unfortunately, the problem with the United States is if even if the government were to take a stance that any American that was in Russia is there at their own risk and that we're not going to rescue them. Our government will never follow through on that position. Um, unfortunately, it's always just a lot of talking and hype, but we will never follow through. Well, you know, that's probably worse. If you if you say you're not going to negotiate and then you turn around and go back on that, that's probably, you know, worse. Jeff, don't Russian citizens own a good chunk of Manhattan and London? Can't we take that? Now you're starting to think about that. All right, maybe we can confiscate this as in compensation for these Americans that are being wrongfully detained. It's just this is a problem that is going to continue to get worse and worse, especially as things continue to go badly for Putin in Ukraine. And given that that's going to be happening for a long time, it's just not safe to be over there. And whether you're a journalist or or a basketball player or a teacher or whatever. I just don't think it's a place that you need to be. And we should, as a country, be doing everything we can to discourage people from going. And if they choose to go, gotta think, gotta make it clear that they're there on their own.